again, good morning. It's so good to see all of you here uh, this morning, and for those of you who have joined us online, we're grateful that you could join us in that way. Uh, my name is Michael Lewis, and my wife Rachel and I have been members here at Covenant Life uh, for about the last four years, and uh, belonging to this church family has honestly been one of the, the greatest uh, privileges of our life. Um, just the, the consistent care and love that we've received from so many of you um, on a weekly and daily basis um, has been such such a gift. Um, it's been so encouraging for me the last couple of weeks to see Ronnie and Frankie preach through Habakkuk, and it's my joy this morning to, uh, to join my brothers and uh, partner with them for the sake of Christ and continuing uh, through Habakkuk chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking this morning... Um, as we were singing and reading and, and, uh, and praying together, um, if, there's ever, if there was ever a doubt of God's love uh, for you, um, how that should be cast out this morning, um, the gospel being proclaimed multiple times already in our service. Um, and so I just encourage you to consider the love of Christ uh, for you this morning. And even... Uh, for those of you who have yet to trust in Christ, um, that you would uh, receive uh, his free gift of grace. Um, <clears throat> before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to accomplish what only he can. Father, thank you for thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you, God, for for preserving it for your people, and through Christ, uh, for preserving a people for your own possession. God, when we were far from you in sin, Lord, your enemies uh, rejecting you. In your great mercy, you came down and you pursued us. Lord, we need your help uh, today. Lord, help us to humble ourselves before your word and to receive it by faith. God, help us to be not hearers only, but people who act. Lord, I'm thankful for the gift of the church this morning. Thank you for these, uh, these brothers and sisters. Lord, we, we pray that today uh, that you would add to that number. Um, Lord, encourage our hearts this morning by your word. Feed your sheep. God, we trust you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't done so already, I will be in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. You can go ahead and open there. Uh, this morning, as we continue our series to the book of Habakkuk, we now pick up in, in verse 2, where the Lord gives his second response. So to recap, so far, Habakkuk has lamented over the sin of Israel, and God has responded, but not in the way that Habakkuk would have ever imagined. In fact, God's response made Habakkuk um, even more confused. 
God said that he was going to judge Israel by the hands of the Chaldeans, a nation who was known for being exceedingly evil. Perplexed, Habakkuk laments again, wondering how his good and holy God could use such a wicked nation to accomplish his purposes. Well, this morning we will look at God's final response. If you remember from last week, verse one of chapter two tells us that Habakkuk has stationed himself upon the watchtower. where he's looking for the Lord's answer uh, to his lament. To give you a bit of context, the watchtower is stationed on the external wall of a city. Into it, a watchman would go to enlarge his perspective. This was an essential role for the city's well-being. From the tower, he would have a clear view of the lay of the land, seeing what couldn't be seen from below. In the tower, he would watch and wait, ready to announce any encroaching danger when it was still far off. And this is where we find Habakkuk, God's prophet. He has stationed himself, not in a physical watchtower, but in the watchtower of his heart. And there he is waiting desperately to hear from God so that he might enlarge his perspective and ultimately see God rightly. This morning, we will focus on what it means to hold fast to God's word and to wait on the Lord. We will focus on God's call for the righteous to live by faith. We will focus on God's plan to establish his justice and the hope of glory for the righteous. So again, this morning our points would be to hold fast to God's word and to wait on the Lord. God's call for the righteous to live by faith. His plan to establish his justice and the hope of glory for the righteous. So let's begin in verse two. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. It's here where we will see the importance of holding on to God's word as we wait on the Lord. God responds and he tells Habakkuk to write it down. What I say will come to pass but you will have to wait. Here are two commands. Write it down and wait. Habakkuk is struggling in his faith because he is perplexed by God's response. But God tells him to write it down and make it plain so that the one who reads it may run. Recording the words of God carries permanence for the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is a gracious appeal for humanity to know God. His word is permanent and preserved so that the one who reads it may run, running with perseverance, because his word will hasten to the end, and it will not lie. Habakkuk stood waiting for God's answer, ready to heed his word. And I wonder, is this how we wait? Often in waiting, we forget what God has said. We can easily become distracted, becoming impatient. We are tempted to take matters into our own hands. And this is where we begin to exchange truth for a lie. But we must hold on to God's word and believe in his goodness regardless of our circumstances. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. We see Habakkuk wanting to understand what surrounds him. And this is why he is waiting 
in the watchtower of his heart. God is saying, Habakkuk, my plan is coming and his timing is rightly fixed. You must wait and believe. Church, let us remember that the Lord does not count slowness as we do. 2 Peter 3, 8 to 9 says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God does not need more time, but he knows his people do, and it's for our benefit. He is a God of great, a God of great mercy, and it is through slowness that he accomplishes in us what we could never accomplish if time was in our hands. He tells Habakkuk to wait for it, but how? How do we wait when we're perplexed and hurting? How do we wait when we're troubled with trials or swallowed up in sorrow or inhibited by injustice? I believe our good father has much to teach us about how to wait. But this morning, we will just focus on three ways that Habakkuk waited that inform our waiting. First, he waits with perspective. Second, he waits with patient perseverance. And third, he waits with faith in the promise. So number one, we wait with perspective. Again, Habakkuk is struggling in his faith because he is perplexed by God's response. But his perspective is enlarged when he considers not just these words from God, but he considers the entirety of God's word throughout all of his word, which, he had, which had been preserved for his people. He was well acquainted with the promises of God and the character of God. In the day of Habakkuk, God communicated to his people by the prophets, but now he communicates to us by his word, the Bible. We must open God's word daily and hide it in our hearts. And when we do, it will bring perspective, an eternal perspective. It lifts us up from the darkness around us and it gives us eyes to see as God sees. Tim Keller provides us an example. Commenting on Romans 8, he says, our present suffering looks big until we compare it to the glory that awaits us who are in Christ. The only sickness that can really destroy me has already been healed. The only debt that can truly sink me has already been forgiven. Having a biblical perspective gives us eyes to see as God sees. And in his word, we find grace to wait. Number two, we wait with patient perseverance. Habakkuk is bringing his situation before God in prayerful lament. He's drawing near to God and in the deepest pain and turmoil of his soul. In doing so, and in doing so, he's taking on a posture of dependence upon God. You see, his patience isn't idle, but it's persevering in prayer. Prayer reorients our hearts and minds to look outside of ourselves and to look unto God. As we take in the word, we must also pray according to the word. To live, we must breathe in, but we must also breathe out. Romans 12, 11 to 12 says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. 
This is an exercise of the will to trust God in prayer. And when we do, he gives us grace to patiently persevere through it. Number three, we wait with faith in the promise. If you look at Habakkuk 2.4, it says that the righteous shall live by his faith. For Habakkuk, his faith was in God's promise to establish the people through a promised redeemer. He would remember the Abrahamic covenant, recount the history of Israel, and know that redemption was sure for all who lived by faith. All the sinfulness of Israel, throughout all the sinfulness of Israel, and amidst countless attempts of foreign nations to wipe them out, God always proved himself faithful. So what is the promise that we are waiting for? For the church, we look to Jesus, the Redeemer, who came and who will come again for all who live by faith. We must remember who he is and what he has done. Jesus is the ultimate promise, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. So in the midst of his difficult circumstances, he must remember the greater story that God has authored and is working out. He could either respond in faith by trusting God to bring about his plan, or he can be proud and puffed up like the Chaldeans, whose own strength was their God. Again, we look at verse four. It says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Proud nations and puffed up people trust in their own strength, but God's people, recognizing that they have nothing to bring, the righteous will live by faith. One author wrote, faith consists of persistent hope in the promises of God. Not a vague hope grounded in imaginary wishful thinking. Instead, faith is a settled confidence that something in the future, something not yet prom, uh, something not yet seen but promised by God, will actually come to pass because God will bring it about. This biblical faith is not blind trust in the face of contrary evidence. It's not an unknowable leap in the dark. Rather, biblical faith is a confident trust in the eternal God who is all-powerful, infinitely wise, eternally trustworthy, the God who has revealed himself in his word and now in the person of Jesus Christ, whose promises have proven true from generation to generation, and who will never leave or forsake his own. This is the key verse in the book of Habakkuk. In the next point in the outline of our sermon today, God is calling the righteous to live by faith. Again, God is calling the righteous to live by faith. The watchtower didn't give Habakkuk eyes to see all things, but as we will hear from chapter three next week, it did give him eyes to see God rightly. To have eyes to see doesn't mean that we will always understand what or why God is doing what he is. In fact, many times we won't understand, but having eyes to see means that we will see him for who he is, which will cause us to humble ourselves, have confidence in his word, and desire to faithfully follow him. Now the righteous shall live by his faith is quoted three times in the New Testament. In Romans 1.17, Paul quotes this verse to show that through faith in Jesus' coming, his sinless life, his saving death, and his resurrection, God satisfies his justice by putting the penalty of our sin on Christ. Through faith, we are made righteous. Then in Galatians 3.11, Paul quotes 
Habakkuk again to show that as people fail to live by works of the law, they do not find life in the law, but a curse. The righteous will live by faith. And this faith is now directed towards Jesus who took the curse of the law through crucifixion. Righteousness does not come by works of the law, but by faith. Lastly, Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, to describe the life of one who has been made righteous. He who is made righteous by faith will also be empowered to live by faith. The life of faith is all-encompassing. It is by faith that one initially receives the gift of salvation, and it is also by faith that one lives each day. Galatians 2.20 tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In an effort to better understand what it means for the righteous uh, to live by faith, I found this expert from John Calvin very helpful. He writes, he then who finds that he is deprived of all protections will live by his faith, provided he seeks in God alone what he wants. And leaving the world fixes his mind on heaven. For though his whole world may perish or be exposed to various changes, yet the faithful shall continue in permanent and real safety. Hence, when Habakkuk promises life and future to the faithful, he no doubt overleaps the boundaries of this world and sets before the faithful a better life than that which they have here, which is accompanied with many sorrows and proves itself by its shortness to be unworthy of being much desired. Church, for us who have been made righteous by faith, may this life be unworthy of being much desired. It pales in comparison to life with Jesus in eternity where there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. This type of life, life lived in faith, is dramatically contrasted with the life lived by those who have impending judgment. So, so far, we've looked at what it means to hold on to God's word as we wait on the Lord. We focused on God's call for the righteous to live by faith, and now we will see God's plan to establish his justice and the hope of glory for the righteous. God's plan to establish justice is pronounced in the five woes, which are divided into two parts, verses 6 to 14 and 15 to 20, both of which end with summary statements declaring the glory and the greatness of God. Well, oracles are generally composed of two parts, a declaration of the wrong and a pronouncement of impending judgment as a result. It is an expression of grief or indignation. In verse 6, the Chaldeans are condemned for their excessive greed and conquest. They have hoarded things that are not theirs. In verse nine, judgment is coming because of their reliance on treasures and wealth for protection. In fact, history tells us that they attempted to build a city that was inaccessible to their enemies with a wall so wide that a four-horse chariot would run upon it. Pride loves to disguise itself with a false sense of security. These arrogant men will never be at rest. In verse 12, they are condemned for their violence and injustice, and in verse 15, violence specifically to their neighbors. 
But the shame and the embarrassment that they have inflicted on others will soon be returned to them. Divine retribution is coming. Lastly, we see in verse 19, that condemnation is coming because of their idolatry. The idols that they have carved and forged with their own hands will not be able to save them. Let's read in verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For it, its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. Psalm 35 similarly says, they have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Like the idols that they have created, the Chaldeans' end will be destruction. But not only the Chaldeans, but all who put their hope in their own gods. It's God's mercy calling us to turn from our idols and to put our faith and our trust in Christ alone. Here we see the detriment of pride and the assurance of God's justice. If we look back at verse four, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. To be proud or puffed up is contrary to righteousness. And James four tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. While the phrase his soul is puffed up refers primarily uh, to the Chaldeans in this context, context, it could also include anyone who is proud. Throughout scripture, we see warnings of the foolishness and the detriment of pride. And every person has to confront pride on a daily basis. Pride is at the root of sin. It assumes the place of God. It does not submit to God. It functions as if God does not exist, placing itself at the center, seeking to be served rather than to serve, desiring for others to know its name rather than God's. Greed, power, and control are ever increasing. It's a glory thief. Pride convinces you that you can be self-sufficient, that you can control your life, that you can be good and righteous in and of yourself. It causes you to be inwardly focused, self-consumed, overly concerned with what others think rather than what God thinks. It trains you to fear man and to live for man's approval rather than fearing God and living for his approval. It leads people through life blindfolded, convinced that they are on a secure path when in reality they are headed for a cliff. Pride is no joking matter, church. He has not turned, um, sorry, God describes the pride of the Chaldeans in great detail for Habakkuk, assuring him that he is ever, bad girl, sorry. He has not turned a blind eye to their sin or the sin of Israel. He sees exactly what's going on and Habakkuk must trust him as he waits for God to act. God's ways of preserving and purifying his people are often mysterious to us. 
but we can take great comfort that ultimate justice will be established. For what goes unseen here on earth will not go unseen in the courts of heaven. (laughs) Nothing will pass from his sight, not one iota. Habakkuk is perplexed because he can't reconcile God's character with God's plan. But in his confusion, he has forgotten that it is God's character that has informed his own. More than he wants justice, God wants justice. God is just. When we see blatant hatred, racism, slander, slavery, and all sorts of suffering, it should grieve our hearts, but be certain it grieves the heart of God far more than it does ours. And the compassion that we feel can't begin to compare to his compassion. As we cry out to God, we can have confidence that he hears our cry. And in his patient and perfect timing, he will bring an end to all injustice. So after the first three woes, God provides Habakkuk with verse 14, which says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's righteousness will triumph and his glory will cover the earth. This is a promise ultimately fulfilled in Christ before whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is in Christ's sinless life, victorious resurrection and vindicating reign that God's righteousness is finally revealed to all humanity over all the earth. Israel existed so that all nations might come to know the true God. This was his covenant with Abraham that he would bless him so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And it was Abraham that he brought out from Ur, the land of the Chaldeans. Friends, nothing is going to stop his glory from covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Unlike the idols we read about in verse 19, our God is able to vindicate his people. Look at verse 20. It says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. There is a tremendous contrast between silent inanimate idols and the awesome living God who sits enthroned in heaven and rules over the earth. He is the one who deserves the honor and reverence they have bestowed on worthless idols. And silence is commanded so that everyone will consider God's awesome nature and realize his sovereignty over all creation. He is Yahweh, the living God, one who hears, sees, and knows. Our God speaks, creates, and sustains all of life. He pursues and he loves at all times. At one time, the temple was where the glory of God dwelt. It was a beautiful, detailed, and elaborate place where people came to encounter the presence of God from a distance and have their sins continually atoned for. But it was a foreshadowing of Jesus, God's ultimate temple, who is the radiance of the glory of God. He was to come and dwell among men. Jesus tabernacled among us, and when he said in three days, I will tear down this temple and build it up again, he was referring to himself. Jesus was crucified. His body, the temple, was broken for you and me. And he was laid in the tomb, but he's not there anymore. Because three days later, he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death. Church, we have a living hope. His sacrifice is final. His presence is now near. 
Jesus is alive, and by putting our faith in his name and in his work, our sin is placed on him, and his righteousness is placed on us. And because he lives, we shall live. My friends, who will you proclaim this message to this week? Who is the one person that the Holy Spirit is laying on your heart to go and tell? Is it a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a child, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker? That person that you keep running into at the park or the grocery store? Or maybe the man or the woman who's on the corner every day when you drive home from work? Will you lean in? Will you tell them? Friends, it's too good to keep to ourselves. And the stakes are too high. The generous love of God has been given to us. It's been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That it may fill us up and spill over into the lives of those around us. And as sons and daughters, let's join our Father where he is at work. We are his mouthpiece, his hands and his feet, the salt and light of the earth, his ambassadors, his ministers of reconciliation, the people set apart to proclaim his excellencies to the world. And by faith, we are justified. By faith in God, we live. In closing, God's response to Habakkuk ends with a call for all the earth to keep silence before him. Silence represents respect or fear. The day of the Lord is coming when he will judge his enemies and bless his followers. God's response requires quiet and reverent meditation. The goal is to fix our mind on Jesus, the word, and to remain there until he has his way with us. It's here in the fear of the Lord, in the quietness of soul, that the spirit of God illuminates his word and works it down deep into the heart where it does its sanctifying work. It's here where the roots of faith grow down deep, soaking up nutrients, and holding us firm, and causing us to bear fruit in season. It's here that the mind is renewed and transformed so that it may discern the will of God. And it's here that the size of our fears, our trials, and our temptations begin to shrink back and fade away in light of the surpassing worth of Christ and the hope of glory, our eternal inheritance that awaits all who by faith belong to Jesus. In the gospel, God's wisdom, justice, mercy, and providential provision are on display. Like Habakkuk, we have and we will continue to face difficult and perplexing times. But when we do, may we remember that the faith that saved us is the faith that will keep us trusting in our infallible and good God. God is just and merciful even when his people don't understand what he is doing. Wickedness will eventually be punished. The righteous will ultimately see God's justice and we will all behold God's glory. So hold fast to God's word and wait on the Lord. God's call for the righteous is to live by faith. God's plan to establish his justice and the hope of glory for the righteous is sure to come. 
Next week, we will continue in Habakkuk chapter 3, where we will look at the transformation that has occurred in the depth of Habakkuk's soul in light of this response. So until then, may we hold fast to God's word in our waiting. Remember that the righteous shall live by faith and that God will establish his justice and the hope of glory for the righteous. Let's pray. God, we're thankful this morning that that your word goes out and it accomplishes his purposes. Lord, your word, the gospel, the sinless life, the atoning death, the victorious resurrection of Christ is the power of salvation unto those who will believe. God, your word is living, it's active. So Lord, open our mouths to declare your word. Lord, we pray that those who have yet to trust in Christ would see your mercy and your patience towards them. But God, may they not presume upon your kindness. Knowing this, that your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, help us to trust it. Help us to walk in it as we leave this place and as we go moment by moment, day by day. Thank you for your love, Father. And it's your name that we pray. Amen.